I'm so excited to jump back into this study tonight. Life in the third person. Of course, when we talk about the third person, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity. And the third person of the Trinity is none other than the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, possibly one of the most neglected topics in uh, many evangelical churches. Uh, some would contend it's one of the most overemphasized in certain churches. I disagree. I don't think you can overemphasize the Holy Spirit. I think what is overemphasized is sometimes a misinterpretation of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. But the proper interpretation of the Holy Spirit cannot be overemphasized. And that is why we're spending time studying, learning who He is, what He does. Last Wednesday, we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about how God brought us into vital union with Himself, uh, into total identification with Jesus Christ. When does it happen? We said it happens at the point of faith. That's when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Tonight, we're going to talk about something else that happens. And when we talk about all these various activities, works, of the Holy Spirit, sometimes people say, well, what, what is the order in which all these happen? What is the sequence there? Well, I can tell you the drawing of the Spirit. When you came to faith, it was because He first drew you, all right? That's number one. Uh, but after that, it gets a little hazy. Now, you could uh, get a theologian uh, in front of you, and he might say, well, this is the exact order that all this happens. I don't think it really matters after you come to faith what order it happens in because I believe it happens so blindingly fast, it's undetectable, the sequence of that. But tonight we're going to look at a very, very important component of the Spirit's work in your life, and it's called regeneration. Regeneration, the making of something old into something new, something dead becoming something alive, becoming something new. You know, last night was Halloween. And uh, it, was, it was cold. It was 40 degrees colder than the day before. And so if you had kids and you're out there doing the Halloween thing with all of that, uh, you know, you were, you were bundling up, you know. And people have asked me, they're like, Pastor Scott, what do you think about Halloween? Do you, do you take your kids trick-or-treating? And I feel like I'm about to step into a landmine <laughs> when I get asked a question like that. You know, because people have very strong opinions on Halloween, some are like, it's the devil's holiday. We shouldn't have anything to do with it. Other people are like, oh, lighten up. I'm kind of like, all right, look, what do you ask me? Are you asking me, do I celebrate Halloween? No, I don't celebrate Halloween. I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Easter. You know, I don't celebrate Halloween, but we are pro-candy. All right? <laughs> we are pro-candy on any day. So if it happens to be October 31st, then, you know, it's kind of like Jerry Seinfeld had a bit years ago about when he first discovered the concept of Halloween when he's a kid. He's like, it blew my mind. People are like, you know, tell him about it. He's like, wait, now what? They're doing what? Who's doing this? They're giving out what? They're giving out candy? Who? Who's doing this? Everyone we know? Well, I got I to be a part of this. I got to get in on this. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. What do I have to do? I can wear that, you know? 
And so when I was growing up, that, that was kind of the thing. It's just like, okay, let's go get a Snickers bar. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll put on a costume. No zombies, no vampires, no serial killers, none of that. But I'll, you know, I'll be somebody goofy and I'll go out there and, and get the sugar. Um, now, we did go through, because my dad was a Baptist preacher, so we did go through phases as a church where we got a little skittish about the practice. And so we would do our own thing. And we wouldn't call it Halloween. You know, it's a harvest festival. It's a fall festival, you know, which is fine. I think those are great. School just did a fundraiser with one. It was awesome. Uh, but we would in- incorporate a costume element. And so it was like you put on a costume, you come to the fall festival. But in the Baptist church that I grew up in, you had to come dressed as a Bible character. You been to those? Those are fun, you know? You got to be super creative or everybody looks the same. Is that true? I mean, what's the generic Bible character costume? It's some kind of a robe with something on your head and you wear sandals. And that's about it. So once you get past David in a sling or, you know, Moses and the Ten Commandments, uh, you're out of props. It's just the standard costume. So one year, I got to admit, though, I'm pretty proud of this. I think I nailed it. I showed up at one of these Bible character costume parties and I came in the standard you know, garb with the robe and the headdress and the sandals and all that. And I had a pillow. And on that pillow, I had a salt shaker. And they said, who are you supposed to be? I said, hi, I'm Lot. Is my wife? (laughs) So there's that. But what is the fun of all this for the kid? You know, uh, they just want to become something that they're not. They want to, for what, they just want to be something different. They want to transform what they are into something else, and that is regeneration. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, except that this kind of regeneration is not for a night, and it's not for the reward of a Snickers bar. It's for something eternal. And often, uh, when you talk about regeneration, you use other terminology. You'll use the phrase uh, rebirth, or renewal, or born again. And we use that phrase a lot in evangelical Christianity. You talk about somebody born again. Uh, you know, when, when, when somebody runs for office, sometimes they get asked a question about their faith. And they'll describe their faith. And if it's of a particular brand or denomination, they might refer to themselves as a born-again Christian. And the media kind of jumps on that and they trumpet, you know, so-and-so self-professed born-again Christian. And it becomes kind of a, uh, an identifier as to what kind of person we're talking about that they've had some sort of a life-changing encounter by which they've obtained this you know, religious fervor for Jesus Christ. And that tag, born again, can, it can frighten some people, uh, and it might excite other people when it comes to a political race or something like that. But it's definitely a term, born again, that, that became mainstream in maybe the 70s and 80s. Uh, but I would say the term goes way, way, way back before that to about A.D. 34, as we're going to see in our time tonight. But the one who coined that term born again, none other than Jesus Christ. And so that is regeneration. To be born again is the same as regeneration. In your notes, today when we talk about being born again, we're talking about something called regeneration. You're different. You're altogether new. There was a guy who got saved at a revival in his hometown, church revival, And he was known prior to that as the town drunk. He was an alcoholic. And he goes, and his life is just just captured by Jesus Christ. He's transformed. 
And he becomes a new man, gives his life to the Lord, completely changes. Well, this rattles his old crowd. The guys down at the bar, they're a little skeptical about this. And so they're, they're grilling him. They're like, are you really into this Jesus stuff? He's like, I am. They say, you really believe this? He's like, I do. You believe everything in this Bible right here? No, I, I do. You, you mean to tell me you believe that, that Jesus did all those miracles? You think that Jesus really turned water into wine? He's like, well... He's thinking back. He's thinking how he wasted all of his family's finances with his drinking and all that. He goes, not only do I believe that Jesus turned water into wine, but for me, in my case, he turned beer into furniture. You know? And that's regeneration, baby. I mean, God can turn beer into furniture. God can turn an old life into a new life. He can turn a dead man into a living man. And that's what we're talking about. And so we're going to look at several passages that speak to this matter called regeneration. We're going to read them, study them. We're going to look at them together. We're going to take them apart. We're going to dissect them. And we will derive from them uh, an understanding of what the new birth is, what regeneration is. And I want to start with the Greek word that is translated as regeneration. Now, the English word regeneration, uh, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, it only shows up twice. Uh, In the Greek, it only shows up twice. And uh, the first time we see it in your notes, Scripture is speaking of regeneration in a political sense. In a political sense. Now, I don't mean in in terms of a political party. I just mean in terms of God's final form of government. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking with his disciples... He's just had this encounter that you all know of where he's, he's engaged this, this rich young ruler. This, this young guy comes to him and says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know this story. And Jesus looks at this guy, sees into his heart, knows what his hangups are, knows he's got an unhealthy attachment to money. And he, he smiles and he says, and he rattles off all these, these uh, commandments. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. This guy's like, okay, good, check, check, check. I did all that. All these I have kept since my youth. Jesus says, one thing you lack. You lack one thing. He says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, then you'll have eternal life. And why did he say that? Because he knew what was the obstacle for this young man. So this guy, he knows he can't do that. He can't let go of the thing that's most important to him. So he hangs his head, he leaves. Well, then this episode turns into a teachable moment for his disciples. And they come to him and they ask this obvious question uh, with the understanding that, you know, this guy, this rich man, his obstacle was money. And so these disciples say, well, what hope is there for any of us? Who then can be saved is what they say. And there's a very vintage Jesus answer that follows that. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Regeneration, you see. And then, of course, Peter responds. And Peter, who who could always be counted on to say and blurt out what everybody's thinking, he says, you know, Lord, we've given everything for you. We've walked away from everything. Our livelihood left those fishing nets on the shore. What will we have? Speaking of the kingdom, right? And so... Jesus offers a response, and this is Matthew 19, 28. And I'm going to read to you from the New King James Version because that version contains this this word that we're talking about, regeneration. He says, so Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, 
When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. When are they going to do all this? When are they going to come and and unite with him and and judge Israel together, sitting on these thrones? When's that going to be? He says, in the regeneration. What do we call that time period? That is future. Is there a time coming in the future where Christ is literally, physically going to rule on the earth? From a throne? What do we call that? We call that the kingdom. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. How many of you believe Jesus is coming back? Amen. He's going to rule on planet earth. All right? Not in some symbolic way. He's going to rule in a literal way. And so he's referring to that time as the regeneration. So that is a a final governmental presence on the earth. In, in its last thousand years of existence before he annihilates and recreates and we go into the eternal state, okay? But it's going to be a utopia. It's going to be the world as God designed it originally. What you could not attain, and we've tried to seek, has man tried to come about utopia across the centuries? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, even religiously, we've tried to recreate it, tried to have a reformation, tried to have uh, culturally secular Uh, secularly, all right, we try to have a renaissance. Well, listen, what we could not accomplish via reformation or renaissance will be accomplished via regeneration because something will be different about that government and the people that populate it. They will be born again. When you trust Christ, you're not reformed or uh, in encountering a renaissance. You are regenerated. You are fundamentally changed. And so that is the first sense in which we see the word. Second time this word is used, in your notes, there is a regeneration in a spiritual sense. First time he's talking about an event in which everybody's going to be there ruling perfectly. Now we're talking about a spiritual state that we enter into. Titus 3.5. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Are we capable of all those things? We are. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so this text right here, Paul is writing to Titus, and he's saying that when someone trusts Jesus, they are washed. He uses that word, the washing. They are renewed, okay? What does it mean to be washed? Have we we sung hymns about being washed? Washed in the blood, right? Washed white as snow. We're familiar with that lingo. What does that mean? That means our situation has changed Because our sins are gone, they're washed away. We trust in Christ, and his sacrifice has washed our sins away. There's that beautiful imagery there. That's part of regeneration. But not only are our sins gone, doesn't do you any good for him to just forgive sin if you go out and you behave the same exact way. Okay? That'd be like if somebody goes and they get that surgery. You know, they they have liposuction. And they do all these things, and then they go out, and they just go on a cheesecake binge, right? You know, So to have your sins wiped away would do you no good if your nature hasn't changed. 
Well, that's the second part of regeneration. You got a new nature. You're no longer all those things that we read about in the first part of that verse. Disobedient, foolish, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, malice, envy, hate, all of that stuff. Now you say, well, I know some Christians that still engage in some of that stuff. Ah, that's because you still have an old nature right now. You got a new nature, but you still have the old nature. We're going to talk about that. The point is, now you have something else. You've got an alternative to that old nature, and that is your new nature. Okay, so now you resemble God. You resemble the Son of God. You are a child of God. You look like Him, spiritually speaking. Now, we could try to go through all the passages that deal with the new birth. They are innumerable. In fact, most of your New Testament is made up of such passages. We wouldn't get any analysis in. We wouldn't get any explanation in. We'd just be reading all night. But we're going to look at some key things here. And the first thing, now that we understand via, uh, via Titus, via Matthew, uh, some of these key references to regeneration, now we're going to look at the foundation. What is the foundation? What is the basis for regeneration? Well, it's found in 1 Peter 1. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. There's that familiar phrase. How are we born again? He goes on to say, You're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's your foundation right there. He has caused us to be born again. How so? It's through his resurrection from the dead. That's the foundation. Christ is raised from the dead. So included in that are two things. His crucifixion, which would be his atonement for our sin, and his resurrection. He he died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that is the basis. And we are linked to him by the Holy Spirit who places us in Christ's body, so that's what, what is true of him is now true of us, which is what we talked about last week. We talked about the baptism. But the basis in your notes is this. It's the person and work of Christ. It's the person and work of Christ. There is no regeneration. You do not get to become a new man, a new woman, if Christ never rose from the dead. Okay? So that's the basis. If that didn't happen, regeneration doesn't happen. You understand? That's the basis. Now, what's the method? you got a foundation for regeneration, the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did on the cross, what he did when he came out of the grave. Now, what is the method? How does that regenerate us? How does he bring it about? Obviously, you're going to guess, well, I'm assuming since this is a series on the Holy Spirit, I'm betting it involves the Holy Spirit. Well, you'd be right. So we know that. But that's not all. That's not all. Because 1 Peter In verse 23 of chapter 1, it says this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay? And so this is describing, this verse, it's describing two types of seed. You've got perishable seed. You've got imperishable seed. He's saying you've been born of imperishable seed. And what is that imperishable seed? He just told us. It's the word of God. All right? It's the word of God. What does that mean? Greek word for seed is sporos. Sporos. All right? Uh, When you think of reproduction, 
I'm thinking like human reproduction. Go back to health class, all right? Remember, uh, when we snickered through health class, what is necessary for human reproduction from the Father? Sperm is required. That comes from this word in the Greek, sporos, all right? Translated as seed, right here, reproductive seed. When a person receives the living word of God, when they're drawn by the Spirit, remember the Spirit draws you, opens your ears, opens your eyes, you hear the gospel message, you respond to the gospel message, which, what is that? That's the testimony of our sinful state and what Jesus did to save us from that sinful state, his sacrifice. We respond to that, and then that message is like a seed that gets planted in your heart, and it takes root. And the word of God, the gospel, reproduces in the believing heart. That's the process. And what is the result of that? A new person. A new person. That's why we're called children of God. Just like a seed unites with an egg biologically and a baby is produced. Well, the seed of the word of God takes root in a believer's heart. And the product of that is a child of God. So you're born of the word. An imperishable seed. Okay, so what are the means of that rebirth? Well, in your notes, in your notes, it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. All right, we know it's the Spirit of God. Ergo, we're in this series on the Holy Spirit. That should be obvious. Everything we've talked about in Scripture has referenced the Holy Spirit. But now we add to that in the rebirth process the Word of God. So it's not merely a spiritual encounter. You know, you hear people talking about encounters that they had with God. You know, I saw a bright light. And it just got bigger and bigger, and I was enveloped into it, and now I'm a child of God. Uh, okay, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he did for you? Do you know why you need him? Because that's all part of the gospel, you see. So we don't, we don't become children of God just on the basis of supernatural spiritual encounter, right? It's, it's accompanied by the word of Christ, and that is supernatural too, because it takes root in your heart. And so it's both spirit and the word. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, that's your spirit. That's the spirit drawing you, okay? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? Through the word of Christ. So how do we come to God? Is it by spirit or is it by the word? Both. It's by both, you understand. Look at what James says, brother of Christ. James 1.15, he says, but each person is tempted. This, he's telling us where sin comes from, okay? Because you've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to know you're a sinner. If you're going to be born again, you have to acknowledge that. James says, here's where sin comes from. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when, he, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. All this biological reproductive language here. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Death, all right? So with this reproductive lingo here, sin in James is being conceived and born. Interesting. And who's responsible for that birth of sin? Is it God? No. Is it the devil? Not according to James. It's our own desire. It's our own desire. 
We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. Whenever there's some kind of rebellious thought in your head, in your heart, you imagine sin, you concoct it, you carry it out. It's like you have then delivered an offspring called sin. Okay? That, that, that began in your heart. You've conceived it. And now it gestates and you deliver an offspring called sin. And what happens when that, that baby called sin becomes fully grown? What does James say it brings forth? Death. When fully grown, it brings forth death. That's perishable seed. That's not imperishable seed. That is perishable seed that produces this little, you know, Rosemary's baby called sin. All right? And so, but God wants to bring forth a different offspring. We bring forth sin. God's got a different progeny in mind. Take a look at James 1.18. It says, of his own, excuse me, of his own will, he brought us. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay? James is saying, God doesn't give birth to sin. That's what we do. He brought us forth by his word. And his method is to implant in us the word and there is a conception because the spirit draws us and guides us to receive that word and the result is a new creature and that's what every born again believer is you are a new creature the old is gone the new has come amen and so what is the definition we're going to put all this together we've read all these passages from james from romans from from titus from first peter how do we put it together we're going to define regeneration all right uh, there's a few typos on your sheet, but look up here at the screen. This is what it should say. The Holy Spirit, which we, we read about Titus 3, uniting sinners with Christ, which we read about in 1 Peter, through faith in the gospel, we saw that in James 1, saw it in 1 Peter 1, resulting in a new heart that is clean and obedient to God. You're like, well, I... I've been through the new birth. I'm not always obedient. No, I understand that. Remember, you got the old nature. But your new heart is always obedient. Okay, that's your new nature. You got two natures while you're still upright on this earth. Okay, we haven't been fully sanctified in the presence of God yet. We haven't been glorified. We don't have our new, you know, resurrection transformation bodies yet. You still got the flesh. And so you've got an old nature, but your new nature is obedient. You didn't have that before. You might have got lucky every now and again, but now you've got a new nature that you did not have prior. So that is the definition. So we've covered the foundation. We've covered the definition. Now I want to show you something. I want to show you the necessity. And this is so, so vital to anybody who's, who's going to experience regeneration. Why do we need to be born again? Why do we need that? Well, for this, we've got to turn to the one who coined the term we got to go to Jesus himself. So what does born again really mean? We throw that term uh, around all the time. We need to understand it properly, okay? The book of John shows us that we all have to be changed, every single one. You must be born again. I must be born again. Now, that is a dangerous thing to say to somebody. You're running a risk when you say that to somebody. What's the quickest way to insult someone? You insult their family, okay? You say what you want to me. Don't you be talking about my mama, right? Don't you be talking about my parents, all right? 
Well, the message conveyed here is that when you say you must be born again, the implication is you've got bad parentage. You've got, you come from loathsome stock. That is what is conveyed. When, when you tell someone they've got to be born again. Here's what John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. All right? You're not, if, you're, if you're a child of God, you're not born of blood. Not merely born of blood. And the original word in the Greek is, it's actually a plural word. So this should be bloods. You're not born of bloods. Okay, And then it says you're not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must be born again. You must be born of God. So what's, what's the necessity in your notes? It's our tainted human heritage. It's our tainted human heritage. John says in this verse the same thing three times. You're not a child of God because you're born physically. So that means you can't be born of, he says, blood, right? Or, number two, the will of the flesh. That, that ought to be interpreted as two human beings. You're not born of the will of two individuals who decide to procreate. Or, number three, you're not to be born of the will of man. And that word for man is not mankind in a general sense. It's andros, singular, man, male, as in the father, the, the husband, all right? Uh, you're not a child of God because of your bloodline is what, is what is generally communicated here. Your righteous standing before God's got nothing to do with your heritage, your, your genetics, your nationality, not even if you're a Jew, all right? Not even if you're Jewish. And we refer to them as the people of God. Why do we say that? Because they were the people through whom the Messiah would come. But they don't, just because of their Jewishness, have a default position of righteousness in the sight of God. They still have to come to Jesus Christ. So, not of blood is what the message is here. Uh, you remember what John the Baptist said to those, those religious elites. He said, uh, you know, uh, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He said, I tell you, God's able to take from these stones and raise up children of Abraham. He's like, if you're not going to be obedient to God, he'll take these rocks over you. Is what he's saying. Paul told Timothy, refrain from getting into arguments about genealogies, as was the habit of the day. People, you know, fighting over who's descended from whom and all this stuff. He's like, dude, your lineage has got nothing to do with it. Your bloodline has got nothing to do with it. Everybody needs redemption. You all need to be born again. Don't, don't care how cute your baby is. He needs to be born again. Uh, your pedigree, not going to get you there. Two human beings cannot collaborate and make a child of God. I don't care how good looking they are. I don't care if it's Travis Kelsey and what's her name. All right? Uh, a noble, notice I only said the football guy. Anyway, a noble father with tons of accomplishments and respect of countless folks is not going to be good enough to produce a righteous child. So we need rebirth. Why? Because we are sinners from the womb. Every single one of us. We got bad blood, bad genetics. Okay? That's the reason. When I was a kid, we had a basketball hoop uh, next to our driveway. And I would, go every, I would go out there every day. In the summertime, I'd go out there after school and I'd shoot, I'd shoot hoops. You know? I'm sure a lot of you did, being here in North Carolina. I probably did the same thing. When you were a kid and you're doing this, did you ever, like, imagine scenarios in your head? 
as you're bouncing that ball around the, around the driveway and you're, you know, and you're, you're, you're imagining that you're in the big game, you know, either in the NBA or at your, on your varsity team at the high school. And you're like, you hear the announcer, you're like, you're like three seconds left in the game. Grim feeds back. He shoots. Swish. You know, and of course, you're playing it out literally as you hear it in your head. And it takes you like 29 times before the ball actually goes in to perfect the fantasy, you know. But in my mind, I was like, I want to be the next Larry Bird. I want to be the next Michael Jordan. And then a few years went by. And that growth spurt didn't happen. (laughs) Or worse, it had happened, and it was so insignificant as to be negligible, all right? I'm still waiting for it. a few years later, I, I kind of got obsessed with being a fighter pilot. The point there with the basketball is I'm 5'5 as an adult. I got two parents about the same height. I got bad basketball genes, right? <laughs> a few years later, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. You know, I saw Top Gun. I was like, that's for me. I want to be Tom Cruise. And, and so I, I, I researched all the, the jet fighters. I knew all the specs on all of them. I, I studied up. I, I looked into applying at the academy eventually. I had dreams of soaring into the wild blue yonder. You know, fight for Uncle Sam. Uh, take out those MiGs, all that stuff. And then I found out fighter pilots need 20-20 vision. I have the eyesight of a mole, Okay. <laughs> Both my parents wear corrective lenses. I got bad fighter pilot genes. It doesn't fly. No pun intended. All right? So spiritually, we're all in that boat. We are disqualified from the favor of God due to bad blood. Bad blood. Everyone. What do we do about it? Look at John 3. Jesus gets a visit. Late at night. It says, now there was a man, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. Now, that, that sentence right there may mean nothing to you. To a Jew of that day, every part of that sentence was impressive. Nicodemus, highly regarded man, great reputation. His name is impressive. It means victory of the people. He's actually mentioned in the Talmud. He's mentioned as one of the four richest men in Jerusalem. Okay? He's got clout. He's eventually going to become a follower of Jesus. At this point, he's a seeker. Okay? But he's a Jew. And not only is he a Jew, he's a member of the ruling party. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling uh, council. He's got clout. Everybody looks to a guy like this. He's regarded as a knowledgeable man. If anybody would know how to get to heaven, how to get into the kingdom, it would be this guy. He comes to Jesus, verse 2, by night. Why by night? Could be out of fear. I'm I'm sure he has regard for Christ. He genuinely is seeking truth, but he's afraid to come to him in the daytime because he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. So he comes. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That seems very complimentary toward Jesus. And I'm sure having buttered him up, Nicodemus might expect some pleasantries from Christ in return. And instead, Jesus unloads this withering statement on him. Look at verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow, Jesus. Kind of blunt. What's the deal? How come you're not, you know, well, thank you. Thank you, Nicodemus. Uh, you know, I mean, you come well regarded as well. No, he doesn't get into that. He cuts right to the chase. Why? Could be because Nicodemus called him a rabbi. 
Now, that's, that's a term of respect for most people. It means teacher. But you see, that's what Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a teacher. And so this is really not a title of honor. He's regarding Christ as a peer. And Jesus is saying, uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not just some teacher. And you're not even that in the sight of God. You're not a ruler, you're a sinner. And you need to be born again. And that phrase right there that Jesus just uttered, born again, what we, what we think of when we say that phrase born again, that's not, that's not technically what Jesus said. In the Greek here, it's genete anothen. And it literally translates as born from above. Born from above. Anothen. Same word John the Baptist uses when he talks about Jesus later in this same chapter. If you drop down to verse 31 of this chapter, John the Baptist tells the Pharisees that he who comes from above, anothen, is above all. Talking about Jesus. He who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven, Jesus, is above all. He's from above. Why doesn't our Bible, uh, now I'm reading from the ESV, maybe you've got a different one, but why, why don't most Bibles translate what we often read as born again? Why don't they translate it as born from above? I think it might have to do with how Nicodemus understood Christ. Because in the next verse, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And what's interesting is that Nicodemus does not use the same word anothen that Jesus used. He uses deuteron. Deuteron. It means second. Deuteron means second. Deuteronomy. Second law. Second reading of the law. So the word that Nicodemus uses shows us he does not grasp the spiritual nature of what Jesus is saying about the new birth. And Jesus basically says, Nicodemus, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't need a repeat birth, Nicodemus. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about you crawling up in your mother's womb one more time. Let's try it again. You're only going to get the same result, flesh. A second birth of the same kind produces the same Result, flesh. You don't need another fleshly birth. You need something different. And in verse 5, he answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So whatever this, this birth is that he's talking about, from above or whatever, if you don't have it, you don't enter the kingdom of God. You don't even see the kingdom of God. Now, he says, unless you're born of water... And the Spirit, what does it mean to be born of water? Is that like when a, a woman's water breaks before she gives birth? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Huh. Well, here's what I know. I know that Jesus expects Nicodemus to know what the heck he's talking about. He's incredulous that Nicodemus doesn't get this. Because if you drop down to verse 10, here's what he says in verse 10. Are you, are you the teacher of Israel? Mr. Teacher, Mr. Rabbi? Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, when we speak of what we know, we speak of what we know, we bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, Nicodemus, these are earthly truths. You should know these. 
These are readily available to you. You've had access to this all along. Meaning what? The Old Testament talks about this, bro. Haven't you read? Jesus would say this repeatedly. Have you not read? Have you not read? You know, you've got the Old Testament. You know what the difference is between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do they talk about radically different things? Not really. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the difference between anticipation and realization. And so Jesus is talking about something that the Old Testament anticipated, but now it's being realized. He's not really breaking new ground here. So this necessity for generation in your notes was revealed long ago. It was revealed long ago. He's just defining what has already been there and has been there for a long, long time. So if you don't have this birth, you don't get to enter what? The kingdom, right? He's talking about who's going to enter the kingdom and how they get in there. Well, way back in Ezekiel. Where's that? It's in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, that chapter describes who will enter the kingdom someday. And God says to Israel through his prophet in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, or verse 24 rather, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. What is that? That's the kingdom. Is this a spiritual symbolic kingdom? No, it's a literal kingdom. I'm going to bring you into your land. Millennium. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. You see what happens? Who gets to go into that kingdom? Select people that the Lord will sprinkle with clean water. What is that? That's the washing of water. They're going to be born of water. All right? Any Jew understood what that meant. Talk about water. They understood that symbolized something ceremonially. They had cleansing rituals. This speaks of being made clean, made, made acceptable to God. They're highly familiar with this. So, born of water, made clean. What is it? Forgiven. They're to be forgiven. What do we read in Titus? Remember, we read Titus 3, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the New Testament. So when I am placed in Christ, I'm washed. I'm washed clean. And not only is that spoken of in the Old Testament, but in verse 26, he says something else. We're going to talk about washing of the water in Ezekiel, but he also says, I will give you a new heart. This is Old Testament. Doesn't that sound like New Testament language to you? I will give you a new heart. That sounds like an evangelical New Testament church Bible preacher right there. The Lord will give you a new heart. This is Ezekiel. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. What the heck? That sounds like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Wow. Old Testament. Born of the Spirit, new heart, new nature. What does it mean when you have a new nature? That means you have new inclinations that you did not have before. How many of you, after you got saved, you could just do all the old sinful activities that you used to do and not feel a thing? Something was different. Now, you, you could still engage in them, but you didn't feel the same about them, right? Is that true? I hope that's true. All right? 
You got new inclinations. You go on, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You can't obey my rules on your own. You need my spirit in you in order to do it. You see the, the design of God here? Keep in mind, this is all required to enter the kingdom. You don't get into the kingdom without this. This is at the point of entry. This happens. So, what did Jesus mean in light of that? In John 3, when he told Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. To be born of water and the Spirit means, in your notes, you need forgiveness and you need a new nature. You need to be washed of your sins and you need to be given a new heart, new mind, by which you can obey the Lord. Because you can't do that without this. So this is clearly taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I can't stand it when people go, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament are totally different. You know, in the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath and, and rules. And in the New Testament, he's a God of mercy, God of love. No, it's same God, same God, same Bible. Remember, anticipated, realized. All right, you with me? Okay, so nothing novel here. Back to John 3, verse 6. Jesus tells Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying that whatever is born is of the same nature as that which gives birth to it. Is that true? Whatever is born has the nature of whatever conceived it, delivered it. Okay? This is fundamental to all life. People give birth to people. Birds give birth to birds. Right? You know, dogs don't give birth to cats. What a horrible thing that would be. Uh, we've been reading Genesis 1. This concept is seen there. Everything that reproduces does so, and the phrase is, after their own kind. Everything reproduces after their own kind. So that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. If you remain human, that is not good enough. You need a different birth. Not, not a rebirth, not a, not a new human birth. A different kind of birth. You need to be born of the water and of the spirit. And so you, you can't be born of the flesh. Remember what we call the sinfulness of man? We, what do we call it? All throughout the New Testament, this is how it's referred to. The flesh. The flesh. Your old nature is your flesh. Sarx in the Greek is the word. Okay? That's what we call it. So you need the spirit. So we wrap up with this. Well, in verse 7, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And that phrase, reminding you, is, is, is actually born from where? Above. You're born from above. You're, you're not of this world. You're of another world. When you come to faith in Christ, you are no longer of this world. You're in it. You're not of it. You're of another world. You're of heaven. Okay? Verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, something interesting here. He uses the word wind, and he uses the word spirit in the same verse. Guess what? In the Greek, same word. Pneuma. Pneuma. Pneuma is translated wind. Pneuma is translated spirit. Now, he calls it wind. It's translated as wind first because of the context, how it's described. Uh, the wind and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is often compared to the wind and how the wind operates. But what do we know about the wind? The wind cannot be understood. 
by human beings, but you can, you can, can you see the wind? Can you see wind? If you could have, you would have today, right? Now, you didn't, you didn't see the wind. Did you see the effects of the wind? Did you feel the effects of the wind? Yeah, yeah, you can see debris flying. You can see the trees moving, swaying. You can see flagpoles rattling. Flags sticking straight out if it's strong enough. You see the effect. After a windstorm, you see the fences that have fallen down and things like that. You see the effects. There's an impact that wind has. Guess what? The Spirit is the same way. You can't see Him because He's Spirit. He's invisible. But you see His effect because He is transformative. He leaves a mark. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. Who was he first? He was Saul of Tarsus. What was he known for? He was known for arranging the the murder of Stephen. The first Christian martyr. Had him stoned to death. That was all Saul. He, He was avid in chasing down Christians. Capturing them. Enslaving them. Torturing them. Having them put to death. He was known as a persecutor of Christians. In the the Greek, it's dokio, dokio, persecutor. Until he became something else by faith, he became a diakonos. He became a servant, a pursuer of Jesus Christ. On that road to Damascus, he was drawn by the Spirit. God led him to the house of a faithful man who showed him the gospel, and he became born again. And that Holy Spirit entered him. Can you imagine the reaction of the believers when they first encountered Saul of Tarsus, now born from above. When they heard about it, they might not have believed it. What? Who? No. What? Maybe there was a little bit of trepidation, fear, if he came in their midst. You know? Maybe there was anger. This is the guy who dragged away my loved ones. This guy had my wife in prison. This guy had my uncle put to death. My best friend because of him. But as he is discipled, what do they see about him? They see the effects of the pneuma in his life. And they understand he's he's not the same man. He's different. And he would go on and he would become what almost everyone regards as the greatest Christian who ever lived. And the man who was there before is now gone. And there, there are two British academics of the 18th century. There's a guy named Gilbert West, a guy named George Littleton. They set out on a task to disprove Christianity. And this is a tale as old as time. Atheists that try to prove their case and they end up coming to faith themselves. And that is precisely what happened with these two guys. By the time they finished their studies, they were both committed believers in Jesus Christ. One of them had set out to disprove Christianity by looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and trying to disprove it. The other guy was going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And the guy who studied Saul, he wrote to the other guy, Neither one of them knew that they'd both come to faith. But when when Littleton finished his study on Saul, who became Paul, it changed him. And he wrote to his academic friend West. He said, besides all the proofs of which it 
maybe drawn from the prophecies of the Old Testament, from the necessary connection it has with the whole system of the Jewish religion, from the miracles of Christ, and from the evidences of his reflection by all the other apostles, I thought the conversion and apostleship of Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity a divine revelation. He looked at the transformation of this man and it was enough to change his own mind. And God used it to transform him. And that is what the regeneration does. In your notes, the effect of regeneration is the invisible life of God made visible through his children. And that's what makes Saul's conversion so compelling is the 180 degree turnaround, the remarkable metamorphosis, the complete character change. And I want you to understand something. The same thing that transformed Saul into Paul transformed the old you into the new you. Same God, same spirit, same power. Regeneration. This is life in the third person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon all of us today. Lord, we thank you for the new birth. We thank you that it is something that changes us. God, I, I, I don't want to be the man I always was. I want to be different, Lord. And we know that there's a journey that follows that decision to follow you. That it is a process by which we are molded and shaped and crafted into the image of Jesus Christ. And it takes... It takes our entire life and is not complete, Lord, until we stand glorified in front of you. But there is something that is immediate, and that is that we've got a new nature. We've been washed clean. We stand in your sight utterly different so that the man or the woman that you gaze upon now is different from the one that you looked upon prior to faith. Whereas before we were wrapped in sinful rags, filthy and useless because of our regeneration, our washing by water, by the Spirit, by the Word, God, we stand clean before you, vibrant, and not just forgiven, but radically different and ready to be used as instruments in your service. Would you use us to a great degree, Lord, to bring others to faith? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.